0: Thank you very much. All right. Well, if you would turn to 1 John chapter 5 this morning. 1 John chapter 5. We've spent this year, in a sense, talking about how to be prepared for the future. And it's the word of God and the truth of God that prepares us for whatever is to come whether it's in the next five minutes, the next five months, or the next five years, or whatever it may be. And so we want to continue doing that this morning. Last week, as Diane mentioned, we talked a little bit about Martin Luther and how he dealt with uh, depression. Well, I want to remind you of another incident in the life of Martin Luther today. Uh, Martin Luther, of course, is the man that God used to start the Protestant Reformation he was a German uh, who became a monk and eventually became a pastor and is the namesake of the Lutheran church. And so God used him in great and wonderful ways. And yet he had significant struggles, as we talked about last week. But uh, a part of his significant struggle happened actually even before he became a Christian and as he became a Christian. And the struggle that he had was he knew that he was a sinner. He knew that he was not in a right relationship to God. He knew enough about the truth that when he was riding on his horse uh, one day going back to law school and a lightning bolt struck nearby, knocked him off his horse, he immediately said, have mercy on me, Saint Anne, and I will become a monk. And so the fear of dying and dying unprepared to meet god drove him into the monastery and as a result of being in the monastery he he says i didn't give attention to what he would say is women money or possessions he said the only thing that i focused on was that my heart trembled and fidgeted about whether god would bestow his grace on me and so he began to focus entirely on appeasing god by doing good works And yet, the longer he did that, the harder he tried, the more he realized that he could never satisfy God simply by doing things on his own. He would spend hours and hours in the confessional, trying to confess every possible sin that he could imagine. And the the priest would say, Martin Luther, you're just uh, looking for little things to pick on. You're just trying to get out of work by staying in the confessional. Because he'd spent so long trying to confess every possible sin. And he would beat himself. And he would do all kinds of things to try to earn himself favor with God. And yet he would read his Bible. And the way he would read his Bible, he would believe that the gospel, as he read it in Romans chapter 1, was saying that not only did the law condemn him, but the gospel also condemned him as well because in the gospel you see the righteousness of God and he understood the righteousness of God to be God's righteous judgment on sinners so that Jesus came to reveal God's righteous judgment on sinners which the law had already revealed to some degree and he said this at one point, he said, I did not love, yes, I hated the righteous God who punishes sinners. He was very, very clear that on the one hand, he knew he was a sinner and in a way he wanted to be right with God. But the God he saw was a God he hated. And yet he said, I kept going back to Romans chapter one, trying to understand what Paul was talking about there. And he said, all of a sudden, God opened his eyes to see a different side of the Bible the grace and mercy of God. And he realized that what the gospel really was about wasn't about the righteous God punishing sinners like the law declared, but it was truly good news. It was about how God justifies the ungodly simply through faith in the righteousness of Christ, in the death of Christ, so that those who are righteous by faith will live, will have eternal life. And he said it was at that point that he went from hating to loving. From hating what the scripture had to say about God to loving what the scripture had to say about God. And the reality, is, the Bible says, there's only two categories of people, those who hate God and those who love God. Now, that's a hard truth because we tend to think that there are those on one extreme that really hate God and those on the other extreme who really love God and a lot of people are in between. The Bible says it's much more black and white than that. And so what we really need to think about is, what does it mean to love God? What, what is really going on there? What was the movement that Martin Luther made from hating God to loving God? In what sense uh, was he in that category of hating God? In what sense was he, at, by the grace of God, put into the category of loving God? But it all began with the gospel. Um, And that's why we see, it says in Romans 5, that God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. In a sense, he had to come to see the love of God before he could begin to love God. He had to come to see the love of God expressed in the gospel in Christ dying for sinners before he would be transformed into a lover of God. And that's the whole basis for What we've been talking about for several weeks now, what it says in 1 John 4, we have come to know and have believed the love which God has for us. And so what I want to begin to talk about today is the question, what should be the result of knowing and believing that God loves us? I actually started this last week, but I want to start... This week and next week talking about a different aspect of it, but just as a quick reminder of what we talked about last week We're going to ask the question If I truly have seen the love of god in jesus And i've really believed it like we've talked about to some degree Maybe not as much as we should but to some degree i've begun to truly see it What will be the result and what we talked about last week is we will fix our hope on that love if we see it then we will be moved to fix our hope upon it. And the idea is if God has loved me in Jesus, then it moves me to trust Him to love me in the next moment, in the next month, in the next year, in the next millennium. That if I see that He's loved me in Jesus two thousand years ago, then I then I'm moved to trust Him to love me tomorrow and in the following days. And it's very important that we have what you would call a fixed point of reference like that. Um, I've told you before about a a talk that a guy named Frank Peretti has done. He's the one uh, who wrote the book This Present Darkness. He was a pastor. Um, He he made this presentation at one of these uh, conservative Christian uh, conferences one time. And he talks about the idea of imagine uh, if I were in a dark room. It's completely pitch dark. I can see nothing. And he says, uh, just imagine me groping around, trying to figure out what's in this room, who's in this room, uh, trying to get my bearing, but it's a room that has no corners. It's round and it's huge and I can't even reach the side. He said, but eventually, imagine me finding a chair in the room. And I would sit in that chair And I would be able to say, you know what? I don't know about anything else in this room, but I know one thing. I'm in this chair. And he would say, I can begin to explore the room from this chair. And I can just kind of walk my way out and just make sure I don't leave the chair. Or I can, you know, count my steps and get back to the chair. And I can do all kinds of things that revolves around the chair. And I can explore this dark room that I don't really understand what's in it and what's going on in it. And basically, he's using this illustration to talk about the need for a fixed point of reference. And at one point, he picks up the chair and he walks off with it. And everybody laughs because they immediately know there's a problem. You've just picked up and carried with you the fixed point of reference that gave you a sense of where you were in the room now, in his talk, what he 's talking about is the the loss of a moral standard, the loss of the concept of God in our society, in our culture. He says, once you remove God from a culture, then you remove any objective standard of morality that 's outside of us, therefore, you do not have a fixed point of reference for your actions and for understanding life. And it's just like people are saying, I've got my, my uh, fixed point of reference and I'm carrying it with me. And everybody else has their own fixed point of reference, so to speak. But there really is no fixed point of reference. And some people just deny that there ever could be. There's no God. There's no transcendent truth. There's no right and wrong. Everybody does what is right in their own eyes. He gave that talk, I think, um, many, many years ago. But it's very fitting for where we are today in our country. It's a good illustration of where we are today because we've abandoned the idea of God. We've abandoned the idea of an objective uh, standard of right and wrong. We're all walking around with our own chairs saying, this is my fixed point of reference, making up our own idea of, of what to do or what not to do or what to be or what not to be. And in that talk, he says, when you don't have a fixed point of reference that that is both outside of you and does not move, three things happen. It creates confusion, it creates contradictory thinking, and it moves you toward tyranny. So we have in our society today, confusion, contradictory thinking, and a movement toward political tyranny. It's amazing how appropriate what he talked about is to our own day and time. But he goes on to talk about the fact that we as Christians are called to embrace the fixed point of reference that that is the word of God, God, the gospel. And he says from that position, we can love those who have no fixed point of reference we can love like Jesus, if we know that the fixed point of reference for our lives is the love of God has been shown to us in Jesus, I can begin loving people like Jesus, because that's my fixed point of reference. And my encouragement for us is to make the love of God for us in Jesus and because of Jesus the fixed point of reference in our lives so that we can love others like Jesus does, even when they have no fixed point of reference, even when they deny our fixed point of reference. And that's what we talked about last week when it says in Psalm 33, Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope for his loving kindness, believing that this next minute, God's going to love me. Five years from now, God's going to be loving me. A million years from now, God's going to be loving me. We have our hope set on His loving kindness. Psalm 42 says, The Lord will command His loving kindness in the daytime. He will be continually commanding only that which will be an expression of His love for me. And that's why, again, as we talked about Psalm 42, Why are you in despair, O my soul? And why have you become disturbed within me? Hope in God, for I shall yet praise Him, the help of my countenance. And my God. And so the first movement that we need to make once we've come to believe the love of God for us in Jesus is to fight to keep our hope fixed on the love of God for us in Jesus. And not to be moved away from that. Not to uh, be disoriented, confused, have contradictory thinking, uh, and all those things in our own hearts and lives because we've moved away from that. But secondly, Uh, and this is what we want to talk about for the next uh, few weeks, is we love. If we've come to believe the love of God for us, the result of that should not only be that we have a hope in God's love, but we begin to love in a way that's unique to Christians. It says in 1 John 4, 19, we love because he first loved us. All we've talked about with regard to God loving us, And our putting our hope in God's love for us is foundational to loving in the way that we need to love. Now, what's interesting is that in our society, because of many, many years of people preaching to everyone indiscriminately, God loves you unconditionally. There are plenty of people who would say, I've heard that God loves me unconditionally. He will always love me and that sort of thing. And they will come to a conclusion like this. Because God loves me unconditionally, then he accepts me just as I am, and I don't have to be concerned about how I live, or what I love, or where my faith and hope lie. There are some who are not changed by the knowledge that God loves them. They've heard this idea that God loves them unconditionally, And the result has been they are not moved to love God. They're not moved to love others. They feel just free to live the way they want to live. It's almost like by telling them that and hearing that, they have no fixed point of reference. They're just going to live whatever way they want to. And that is not believing the love of God. That's actually an expression of unbelief. If I say, I know God loves me, and it doesn't change me, I do not know the love of God. I do not really believe in the love of God because if I did, I would realize the best thing I can do is love that God and return. The best thing I can do is to listen to that God who loves me. The best thing I can do is to seek to please that God who loves me if I really see that and believe that. And so... Um, I've entitled this series, Love the Love, which may sound a little strange, but it's really at the heart of what we're talking about when we're talking about what it means to love because we've been loved. And it means this, if God is love, then to say we are to love God means I am to love the love or I'm to love love, who is God. If if the Bible says that the law of God is the way we know what love looks like, then to love the law of God is to love love. And then finally, if the Bible says that we are to love kindness, and that word kindness in Micah six eight is could also be translated love or loving kindness. If we're to love love as it says in micah 6 8 then that's we're to love loving like god loves that's the whole idea and so that's what we're going to try to unpack um, as we go through this but if you look at first john 5 1 through 4 all three of those things the idea of loving god the idea of loving god's commandments or loving uh, his law is found in this passage and Also, the idea of loving like God loves is found in this passage. And so it's going to be sort of the base passage from which we look at other passages. But it says in 1 John 5, verse 1, "...whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, and whoever loves the Father loves the child born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God, when we love God and observe his commandments." For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome. For whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. So there's a lot in there that we want to unpack. But today, with the time that I have left, I want to talk about the first thing. Loving the God who is love. Now, C.S. Lewis said two things that are interesting. One thing he said was, on the whole, God's love for us is a much safer subject to think about than our love for him. How many of us uh, sit around thinking how much we love God? We're much more likely to spend time thinking about how how much God loves us because that is a much safer subject. And that's what he's talking about. It's much more comfortable to think about how much God loves me as opposed to honestly looking at how much I love God. But he also said this, he said, every Christian would agree that a man's spiritual health is exactly proportional to his love for God. So he's saying, thinking about our love for God is really important, even though it's uncomfortable, especially in light of how much God loves us, Relatively speaking, we don't come close to loving God like he's loved us. But thinking about how we love God or don't love love God is very, very important. In fact, the idea is we are as healthy as our love for God is healthy. And so that's why it's so important for us to really think about it, even though it can be an uncomfortable subject. Um, If you notice in verse 3, we might answer the question, what is love for God, by simply repeating what he says in verse 3. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. And So it appears, in one sense, that we have a definition right there. And the reality is, is that that is a huge part of loving God, but it's not the whole thing. And we could easily walk away from that kind of statement and think, Maybe loving God is just kind of working on my divine to-do list. It's got this list of things that God wants me to do. And as long as I'm giving myself to doing what I think God wants me to do, then I've, I'm loving God. That would be a, a gross oversimplification of what John is talking about here in so many ways. It's interesting the Pharisees in the New Testament were considered by the Jewish people the cream of the crop. They were considered the best people that you could find. They looked at the Pharisees who were so meticulous in so many ways in terms of keeping the law that they thought if anybody loved God, it must be the Pharisees. And if God loved anybody, it must be the Pharisees. And that's exactly what the Pharisees thought. If God loves anybody, it must be us. And if anybody loves God, it must be us. And yet... The reality is, Jesus said to them, Woe to you Pharisees, for you pay tithe of mint and rue and every kind of garden herb, and yet disregard justice and the love of God. But these are the things you should have done without neglecting the others. And so, those who thought they were loved by God simply because they were Jews, and because, especially because they were so meticulous in doing what they thought God wanted them to do, Jesus comes and says, you're disregarding the love of God. You're not loving God. You're you're failing to truly define what that really means. And So I'd like to do this really briefly. I, I looked at a lot of scriptures that talked about different aspects of our responding to God. And let me just kind of give you a bullet point uh, summary of what a lot of scriptures talk about when it talks about love for God. First of all, we can say loving God is almost always closely associated with obedience to God's word, which is exactly what we find here in 1 John. But in other places, we see where loving God is always the greatest priority. Loving God is an activity that consumes all of a person's life. Life is truly a test of love for God. We praise what or who we love. God works in us to cause us to love him. Love for God is the key to life and blessing. Love for God is holding on to God. Love for God takes work and diligence, which is actually something Paul referenced earlier. All those who love God will be loved by God Are loved by God. Godliness is loving God. Loving God and hating evil go together. Hypocrites follow closely the law, but do not love God and man, which is a reference to uh, what we saw just then about the Pharisees. You can't love God and love money. You can't love God and reject Jesus. Loving God is loving his approval more than the approval of men. Christians are those who love God. That's what Romans eight twenty eight tells us. Heaven is prepared for those who love God. Sanctification is growth in love for God. Loving pleasure inappropriately can replace love for God. Loving God and loving people go together. Indeed, we must love God in order to love people. Loving God is preferring him above all others. Loving God is valuing him above all others. Now, why did I take the time to go through that long list so quickly? Because I want you to understand the Bible talks about loving God in a multifaceted way. It doesn't just come right out and say over and over again, i Let me just remind you, this is love for God. But love for God is talked about in the scriptures all over the place in all kinds of ways. And yet, it's very important for us to try to to get a handle on what that really means. For years, I've wrestled with, what does it really mean to love God? How can I get a handle on that in a way that will help me day by day, moment by moment, in my life and seeking him and so one way to approach that question in terms of how do we summarize all the kinds of facets of loving god that we just talked about one way is to think in terms of what does it mean to love another person well fundamentally it means i desire their good and i do them good even if they're my enemy i desire my enemy's good and i do my enemy good but how does that play out with God? How do I desire God's good and do God good? I mean, God doesn't need anything for me. Um, I don't do anything for God in the sense of providing him anything or, or anything like that. So what does that mean? There's a sense in which you have to redefine terms if you're going to use that kind of framework. And you'd have to redefine desiring God's good to maybe something like desiring his glory. And doing God good, you'd have to redefine uh, as something like doing God's will, so that you could define loving God as desiring His glory and doing His will, and that would be true. And the Bible talks in those terms, in, in terms of desiring God's glory and doing God's will. But there's another aspect of of love that I think may help us here, especially in light of what others have said about uh, the love of God that we're to have. Uh, in our own hearts, and that is to think in terms of pleasure, to think in terms of pleasure. If you look at the uh, definition of um, love, uh, at least one of the definitions of love that you can find, for instance, in Webster's, it defines the verb love as to like or desire actively take pleasure in, so that loving someone is to take pleasure in them. Or the Oxford Dictionary talks about the noun love and says, love is a great interest and pleasure in something. I can say I love that movie. What do I mean by that? It pleases me when I watch it. Or I can say I love that person. Because there's something about that person that pleases me. I can say I love hot dogs. Because it pleases me when I eat them or whatever it may be. Many, many times, one of the, the common threads with regard to love, as we often speak of it, is pleasure and how it pleases us. And so what I want us to think about is that we can define love and the various and kind of summarize all the various facets of love by saying at the very bottom there, "We love God by being pleased with God above all, and living to please God." above all. John Owen, that second quote there, says our love, and he's talking about love for God, includes four things. Rest, delight, reverence, and obedience. Now the first two, rest and delight, relate to being pleased with God. I rest in God, I delight in God, because I'm pleased with God in light of who he is, and in light of what he has done for me, in light of what he promises me. And then the idea of reverence and obedience is the idea of living to please God. I honor him and I seek to obey him because I want to please him. I want to respond to him as I should. Then the first quote there, Augustine said, he pleases God whom God pleases. What does that mean? Well, it could mean a couple things. It could mean That the person who is pleased with God lives to please God or the person who is pleased with God is pleased. God is pleased with him. I think it's both. God is pleased with us when we are pleased with him. God is pleased with us as we seek to please him in our lives. John Piper has said, uh, this is the essence of what it means to love God to be satisfied in him, to be satisfied in him, to be pleased with him. And our obedience and our prayers and our thanksgiving and our living flow out of a kind of satisfaction and pleasure in God. That's why simply to say, uh, this is the love of God that we keep his commandments has to be enlarged. And the scripture does that for us to say it includes or it's motivated by a pleasure in God, that we seek to please God not simply because we have to, not simply because we're trying to earn our salvation or escape hell or anything like that, but because we're actually pleased with God. And we know that pleasing him is the right response in our lives. You may remember the um, the quote from C.S. Lewis where he talks about how we're too easily pleased. Just thinking a little bit more about the whole idea of what I'm pleased with or what you're pleased with. Again, he said, It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he can't, cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea we are far too easily pleased. So obviously he's saying that our choices have something to do with what pleases us. And whether or not we actually live to please God has something to do with whether or not we're pleased with God. Now, Martin Luther asked the question essentially is God pleased with me? And how can God be pleased with me? And he tried to earn God's favor, earn God's pleasure, until he realized that God had provided a way for him to be reconciled to him in the Lord Jesus. Unfortunately, many people never ask the question, is God pleased with me? They just live their lives um, basically just pursuing what pleases them and they never ask the question is God pleased with me but many people also never ask the question am I pleased with God am I pleased with God because that's what C.S. Lewis is really highlighting is that we have to ask ourselves am I far too easily pleased with something less than God himself am I pleased with all these other things, and content without God. If you go through the scriptures and you look at how the Bible talks about our relationship with God, it talks in all kinds of ways. It talks about being pleased with God or pleasing God or having God as our portion or seeking God or knowing God. Seeking God is what um, Paul mentioned earlier. It talks about seeing God, praising God, desiring God, Um, seeing God as good, taking refuge in God, being devoted to God, being in the house of the Lord forever, being satisfied with God, sacrificing for God and all those kinds of things. But let me just point out a few verses that talk about both being pleased with God and living to please God. It's interesting in Job 34, verse 9, Elihu, who is not one of the three friends that God condemns at the end of the book, but is a person who steps in to uh, evidently um, provide a bridge between the the bad counsel of Job's friends and God's uh, looming rebuke of Job. He says, Job has said, it profits a man nothing when he is pleased with God. So he's saying, Job was a man who was pleased with God. God brought suffering into his life. And he began to doubt God and he began to be tempted to say, it's worthless to be pleased with God. And so Elihu rebukes Job for saying or being even tempted to say that it's not profitable to be pleased with God when the truth is just the opposite. In Psalm 27, it says one thing I've asked from the Lord that I shall seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to behold the beauty of the Lord and to meditate in his temple. That's an expression of being pleased with God. Psalm 34, eight says, "O taste and see that the Lord is good. How blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Psalm 42, as the deer pants for the water brooks, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? Psalm 43, then I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy. And upon the lyre I shall praise you, O God my God. Psalm 16, 11 You will make known to me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand there are pleasures forever. Which says, I am pleased with you, O God, because every pleasure is found in you. Everything that will truly satisfy me is found in you. I am pleased with you. It also says in Psalm 73, Whom have I in heaven but you? And besides you I desire nothing on earth. My flesh and my heart may fail. But God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you will perish. You have destroyed all those who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, the nearness of God is my good. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I might tell of all your works. The idea that God is our portion, that God is our refuge, that really I have nothing good apart from God. That is the idea that I am pleased with God. In Psalm 17, the psalmist says, From men with your hand, O Lord, from men of the world, whose portion is in this life, and whose belly you fill with treasure, they are satisfied with children, and leave their abundance to their babes. As for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. I will be satisfied with your likeness when I awake. That's really what... Uh, C.S. Lewis is talking about those who are satisfied with the things of this world. They're pleased with the things of this world. They don't have any desire for God. They don't have a desire to be pleased with God or pleased in God. They believe that their pleasure is found right in front of them. Whereas the psalmist says, as for me, when I behold you, when I see you, if I have you, then I will be truly satisfied Uh, far beyond anything else. Psalm 65, it says, How blessed is the one whom you choose and bring near to you to dwell in your courts. We will be satisfied with the goodness of your house, your holy temple. That's why John Piper can talk about loving God in terms of satisfaction. That's one of the ways the Bible talks about that. And then in Matthew 13, you have a story of the treasure hidden in the field where a man finds a treasure, uh, he buries it, goes off and sells everything that he has and buys the field. And he sells everything he has and he buys the field with joy. Why? Because he believes that everything that he's ever wanted is going to be provided through that treasure. That's what it means to be pleased with God, that everything I ever wanted Everything I ever needed I have found in God. I am pleased with him. I am satisfied with him. I am content with him. I will rest in him. I delight in him. That's the whole idea of what the scripture is talking about there. Ultimately in John 17, Jesus prays for us that the love with which God the Father loved Jesus would be in us. That's... God's ultimate purpose for us is that we would not only be like Christ, but we would love Christ just like God the Father does. We will tre- we would treasure him, value him, be pleased with him, just like the Father is pleased with Jesus. That that would be our heart as well. On the other side, you've got the scriptures that talk about pleasing God. In Hebrews 11, it says, by faith, Enoch was taken up so that he would not see death. And he was not found because God took him up. For he obtained the witness that before his being taken up, he was pleasing to God. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. How does God reward those who seek him? With God. He doesn't give you something different. If you seek God, what does he give you? He gives you God. And that's how we please him. We seek him. We seek him as the only thing that can meet our needs and satisfy our souls. And he promises, if you seek me, you will find me to be everything that I've promised to be. And I will be your satisfaction. Other places, Say things like Luke 2, in the Christmas story, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among men with whom he is pleased. Or in Second Corinthians, Paul talks about our ambition, whether at home or absent, is to be pleasing to him, be, to be pleasing to God. In Ephesians 5, Paul says, we're trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. In Colossians 1, Paul says, so that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. To please him in all respects. First Thessalonians 2. Uh, excuse me. Let me just go on to first uh, Thessalonians 4. Where it says. Finally then brethren. We request and exhort you in the Lord Jesus. That as you receive from us instruction. As to how you ought to walk. And please God. That you excel still more. And 1 John 3. Whatever we ask. We receive from him. Because we keep his commandments. And do the things that are pleasing in His sight. And that's the basis for what Paul says in Romans 12 when he says, In light of the gospel, in light of you being justified by faith alone, present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice and prove what the will of God is. Well, all of that is to say that there's a lot that the Bible says about being pleased with God. There's a lot that the Bible says about pleasing God, and they have to go together. If we simply seek to please God, but not being pleased in God, then we're just trying to earn something. We're just trying to get God's favor in a way that he does not want us to do. Now, one of the things that we might struggle with with regard to this whole idea of loving God is are we simply talking about the way I feel what if I get up tomorrow morning and I don't feel strong feelings for God does that mean I'm not loving God the reality is loving God does include feelings but it's not strictly about feelings therefore if I feel at one point cold cold toward God I can still actually love God in what way by saying there's nobody else I'm looking for to meet my needs and to satisfy my soul I don't feel like I ought to feel right now but Lord Jesus you have the words of life I'm not going anywhere I'm not going anywhere so that I can be pleased with God even when my feelings aren't aren't what they should be. Even when they're up and down, I can still be pleased with God in the sense that I have found in God through Jesus all that I ever want and all that I could ever need. I have no need to look anywhere else. So whatever my feelings might be, I can still be pleased with God. And that's why C.S. Lewis could say things like this. Some writers use the word charity to describe not only Christian love between human beings, but also God's love for man and man's love for God. About the second of these two, people are often worried, meaning man's love for God. They are told they ought to love God. They cannot find any such feelings in themselves. What are they to do? The answer is the same as before. Act as if you did. Do not sit trying to manufacture feelings. Ask yourself, if I were sure that I love God, what would I do? When you have found the answer, go and do it. So he's emphasizing the fact that we can't be too fixated on how much I feel warm fuzzies toward God. Now, should I want to feel love toward God? Yes. And I pray that we would all feel more passion for God and more love for God But we have to be careful of thinking that's all it's about. In fact, Jonathan Edwards can say, if that is your number one goal is to feel something toward God, you've made an idol out of that feeling. The way he says it is, if the heart be chiefly and directly fixed on God and the soul engaged to glorify him, some degree of religious affection will be the effect and attendant of it. But to seek after affection directly and chiefly To have the heart principally set upon that is to place it in the room of God and his glory. If it be sought that others may take notice of it and admire us for our spirituality and our forwardness in religion, it is pride. If for the sake of feeling the pleasure of being affected, it is idolatry and self-gratification. So both of these godly men are saying, be careful of making too much of your feelings Yes, we should want to feel certain ways toward God, but don't identify that as what it means to love God in and of itself. And don't let that be the most important thing, lest you idolize something and put something in place of God. The whole idea of being pleased with God is what is meant to deliver us from idolatry. In Romans 1, it says they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Why would someone worship a creature and not the creator? Because they're more pleased in the creature. Why did Eve take of the fruit, the forbidden fruit? Because it was pleasing to the eye. And what she heard from the serpent sounded like this would be more pleasing than God. Why did Adam sin and follow Eve in eating the forbidden fruit? Some would say he looked at Eve and said, well, I don't know if I want to lose Eve. She pleases me. I think I'll hold on to Eve. So what pleases us is driving our response to God and our doing what's right or doing what's wrong. Well, let me conclude with this. George Mueller, uh, he was a godly pastor in the 1800s. You may remember he had uh, several orphanages and he wanted people to know that God answered prayer and that's why he would never tell anybody about the needs of the orphanages. He would just pray and God would show up with milk and food and provision for the orphanages over and over and over again. But at one point, his dear wife died. And um, he had to deal with the loss of his wife. And he says one of the last things that he shared with his wife was the scripture. The Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord will give grace and glory. No good thing will he withhold from those that walk uprightly. And he argued to himself and even with his wife. He said we know that by God's grace we trust in Jesus. And that we seek to please God therefore, if it's God's will and it would be good for you to be healed, you will be. He said it wasn't God's will. And he realized what must have been a good thing for God to take her own home must have been good for me. And what he says is, if she is not restored again, that it would not be a good thing for me, as I just said. And he says, and so my heart was at Rest. I was satisfied with God, and all this springs, as I have often said before, from taking God at his word, believing what he says. If God is sovereign over all of our lives, including the death of our loved ones, including what happens from day to day, then there's a real question that always arises in every hard situation. Am I satisfied with God? Or, like Job, do I wrestle with whether or not it's profitable to be pleased with God? Am I pleased with God? Am I pleased with his orchestration of my life? Am I pleased with what he's promised me? Am I pleased with just resting in him? Next week, we'll talk again about the idea that we love God by being pleased with God above all and living to please God above all. But where does it all begin? And that's what we're about to celebrate in the Lord's Supper. We must begin by turning from sin and trusting in the only one who ever perfectly was pleased with God and who perfectly lived to please God. Because the reality is we will never wake up one day and say, I think I'm as pleased with God as I could ever be. Or I am, I'm living to please God as much as I ever could. We will never wake up that way in this world. We will always see our lack of being pleased with God. We will always see our lack of living to please God as we should. But there will be a real pleasure in God. And there will be a real pursuit of pleasing God as imperfect as it may be. But our hope is not in our being pleased in God. Our hope is not in our living to please God. Our hope is in Jesus, who perfectly loved, enjoyed, was satisfied in God and lived to please God. Let's pray. Let me just ask you to consider as we wrap up and prepare for the Lord's Supper. Are you pleased with God? Are you living to please God? And most importantly, is your faith in Jesus who was perfectly pleased with God and who perfectly lived to please God because that's where our hope really lies. Father, we pray that you would help us to ask the questions that many people never ask and that is the question... Are we pleased with you? And are we living to please you? May those questions be answered honestly. But may our hope and our confidence rest in the Lord Jesus who lived and died and rose again that we might be reconciled to you, that we might truly be pleased with you and live to please you as imperfect as that might be in this world. Please help us. Please encourage us. We love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.